Good morning. Praise the Lord. We will be starting a new book this morning, the book of Galatians. And as I was preparing for this study, I uh, was thinking of uh, an illustration that I hope won't fall quite flat. Uh, starting with this man, can uh, get a picture of my first slide on. Anybody recognizes this man? I see uh, Matt is nodding his head. Oh, then I must have taken the wrong picture. Sorry, I was. I meant to get a picture of uh, Ulysses S. Grant. I may be wrong. Yeah, I'm sorry. You know how it is. You you type something on the internet and you trust the internet. So maybe this is Sherman, I don't know. Uh, they were close associates in the Civil War. Let's assume it's Grant, but it might be Sherman. <laughs> um, what was special about uh, Ulysses S. Grant, um, he was uh, assigned, he eventually became the leading uh, Civil War general for the North. But uh, he was given a particular task of uh, conquering, uh, capturing the town of Vicksburg. Did I have a picture of Vicksburg that I can't remember if that was uh, one of my slides? Yes, no, maybe so. No, I don't have one of those. Okay. Anyways, probably wouldn't be. Oh, there you go. There's a picture of Vicksburg. Uh, why, why was it so important for General Grant? to uh, capture the city of Vicksburg. If you uh, zoom out to my next slide, you might see why. Uh, the city of Vicksburg, it, it was in the south, and uh, it was sitting over a stretch of the Mississippi River that uh, blocked the commerce of the northern half of the United States. So the United States has a big river going through it called the Mississippi. and uh, it really, it's a river that drains most of the rivers uh, in the northern United States. And in those days, that was the easiest way to carry your goods to the outside world. You would load them on a barge uh, in one of the uh, rivers up north of the Mississippi, and you'd flow them down the Mississippi to New Orleans, which sat at the end of it, and then it could get shipped to anywhere in the world. And by uh, Vicksburg uh, closing down the Mississippi River for commerce, they were basically choking the economy of the northern United States. And so it became very critical for Grant, Sherman was helping him, so he was part of it too, to, uh, to uh, capture the city of Vicksburg in order to really open up the Mississippi River for commerce for the north part of the United States. Okay, so much for the illustration. Now, uh, Christians, we don't often think about it, are part of a war as well. In Ephesians chapter 6, in verse 12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, 
against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. That was Ephesians uh, 6.12. So it tells us that we are in a battle. It's a spiritual battle. I, I have no uh, uh, war or conflict with uh, just another person, unlike Grant. I didn't have to worry about soldiers with guns. I have to worry about spiritual enemies, uh, the devil, demons, uh, powers that are fighting against God. And uh, I am part of that battle by being a follower of the Lord Jesus. What is it that we're fighting about? Second uh, Corinthians 10 gives us one aspect of this battle. It says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So here we see that the battleground is often uh, the minds of men, the ideas that are in the minds of men, the arguments that are in the mind of men. And that's what we will see in, as we study the book of Galatians, that there is a false doctrine, a false teaching that's entered the church. It's occupying the seats of the minds of men. And Paul is going to try to cast out that false teaching out of their minds. That's the purpose of the letter. It's really to get rid of this high thing that was exalting itself against the knowledge of God, this false idea that was doing something similar to the city of Vicksburg. It was choking the gospel. It was choking the impact, the effects of the gospel in the church of Galatia. And therefore, that false idea had to be taken out. What it is, we'll see very soon. So first, as we are thinking about this epistle from a perspective of a war, we can think of um, Paul as uh, General Grant or General Sherman having to make the decisions that will win the victory in the Church of Galatia, uh, Churches of Galatia. What is it that he needs to do? Uh, first of all, a general will typically uh, scout the terrain. He will try to understand the conditions of the ground. What's the, the way that the troops have set themselves? What is it that I need to do uh, in order to win this battle? Right? What are the forces that I am arranged against? We'll do that first. Then uh, he needs to understand what is at stake. You have to make sometime a decision as a general. Do I have to capture this particular fort? What will it cost me in, in, uh, as far as lives sacrifice? Is it really worth it? Is Vicksburg really worth the thousands of men that are going to die in the efforts of taking it. Uh, we don't always fight over every battle. We don't uh, try to win everything. We, we decide what is it that's really important, and we, uh, we throw our forces and energy against what really needs to be taken. And so Paul will make that assessment. And then finally, uh, he will have to come up with a strategy of how to win the battle, of how to win the battle. So that will be our introduction to the book of Galatians. And then, uh, of course, 
Finally, the general must engage. It was one of the things that uh, General Grant and perhaps Sherman were known for. At some point during the campaign against Vicksburg, uh, the politicians at Washington and maybe some of the generals were telling President Lincoln, you need to get rid of Grant. He's no good. He's not getting the job done in Vicksburg. And uh, Lincoln said, I cannot afford to lose this general. He fights. He fights. There was a general who was willing to engage the enemy. And so we will see Paul engaging in the first few verses of this, of this book. That will be the end of the sermon. First, uh, as we overview the book, we want to scout. We want to understand what's the layout, what's the situation in Galatia. Now, there was a question in the homework. I don't know how many of you made an attempt to look at the questions in the homework. I won't ask for a raise of hands. Uh, but if you did, if you had the opportunity to look at some of the questions, one of them was, who were the Galatians? So did anybody want to uh, give me their answer if they, they've looked at that homework set? Who were the Galatians? Okay, people who lived in Galatia. Good. Where was Galatia? Someone in the Mediterranean. Okay, anybody wants to be more specific than that? Southern and Western Turkey, Asia Minor. Okay. All right, that's pretty good. I'll, I'll show you a map. Now, not all maps agree. So this is just one of the maps that's out there that attempts to show uh, the regions of Galatia. There's apparently uh, some dispute even among the scholars as to uh, which, what particular part of Galatia maybe was it that uh, Paul was writing to. Apparently there's the Southern Galatian theory and the Northern Galatian theory. So we're not going to get too much into that. But uh, uh, we see Paul's missionaries' journeys. He had a couple of them. And uh, the first one is in the in the red, I believe. Yeah, that's red. And uh, he basically made a circuit. He was uh, sent from Antioch. That is where the, the Holy Spirit spoke to uh, a group of, of praying elders and apostles, and, they t and the Holy Spirit told them to lay hands of Paul and Barnabas and to send them out as missionaries. So they obeyed the Spirit, and they went first to the Isle of Cyprus, where they've had mixed success success, and then they went up into Asia Minor, uh, landing at Pamphylia, and uh, then from there they went up into Antioch, and that's where we'll pick it up in the scriptures. According to that map, that is part of Galatia, and uh, Paul went there, and when he visited the synagogue, so we have to understand at the time the church was very much Jewish in character, Jesus was a Jew, all the apostles were Jews. They were uh, God's people. They were prepared in a special way to receive the gospel. And so the gospel has come, and many Jews believed, not the majority, but you know, quite a few of them, and that was the early church. Now, they knew, some of them at least, that Gentiles were also savable because um, Jesus sent the apostle Peter to the house of Cornelius, and in the house of Cornelius, uh, he shares the gospel because Jesus told him to. And Cornelius gets saved and his family. So some Gentiles have been saved. But it seems that up to this point, still the great majority of the believers are Jews. 
And this is where things are going to start changing. And the church in, in the sorry, synagogue in Antioch is invited to speak. And after he speaks for some times, we'll pick it up in verse 26. This is in the middle of his sermon. He says, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, who would that be? That'd be the Jews at the time. And remember, not everybody there is a believer. These are just Jews, right? Uh, some of them may have believed, but Paul, if Paul is leading in the leading front of the gospel, it's possible that nobody yet in that synagogue has believed in Christ. All right? Sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. Who would that be? That would be uh, Gentiles, possibly proselytes, uh, those who were interested in the God of Israel but would not be from a Jewish background. All right, so men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. What is the word of salvation? The gospel. The gospel. I came with the word of salvation, with the gospel to you. In fact, it was sent to you by God. I am the carrier of that message. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, that is Jesus, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should put him to death, right? So he's talking about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Jesus was crucified because they didn't know him, right? The religious leaders didn't know that he was the Messiah. He claimed to be the Messiah. He had all the evidence backing him, but they refused to believe. They refused to recognize him as the Messiah, and because of that, they put him to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. So now he's preaching the resurrection. Yes, he was killed, in fact, according to prophecy, but God raised him from the dead. He didn't stay dead. We are his eyewitnesses. We have seen him, and now he sent us as witnesses to tell people about his resurrection. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for, our, for, this for us, the children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. I'm going to skip down to verse 38. Verse 38. This is Acts 13, by the way, if you were following me. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Here is the bombshell, this Messiah that was sent, this Messiah that was crucified and rose from the dead, who
Whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in him, is forgiven from their sins. All your sins are forgiven you if you believe in him, if you trust in this Messiah. That's what he came to do. He came to save you from your sins. And all you have to, all you have to do is trust him. And he will do that for you. Uh, skipping down to verse 44, he says, it says, on the next Sabbath, so remember he would have been in the synagogue on the Sabbath. So this is a week later, a week after Paul first preaches this message in Galatia. It says, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. Wow, wow. There were just people in the synagogue. I don't know how many, maybe this many, maybe more. But now the whole city. Imagine all of Fremont trying to cram in here to hear the message that I am preaching next Sunday. That's what was happening uh, in Galatia, in this particular city in Galatia. The whole city came out to hear the word of God, but when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. So perhaps the surprise here uh, was that the Jews rejected the message. Maybe not all of them. Some of them believed. But the Gentiles are now flooding in through the doors of the gospel. And they're believing the simple message that Jesus died for their sins and rose again. And that whoever believes in him is justified and forgiven all their sins. And they were filled. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they were filled with joy. This was real, genuine salvation that was taken over. And the word of God was being spread in Galatia like wildfire, and people were getting saved, pressing into the kingdom of God. Wonderful, wonderful situation. Now, some time later, so if we were to go back to uh, the map, this is uh, kind of a, we're going to see how, 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 how on cue our uh, computer uh, backup is. But yeah, so Paul finishes uh, in Galatia, and he turns back, and he goes back, to Antioch, and uh, I, I'm not sure, there may have been a quick trip to Jerusalem and back, but uh, Paul at some point is finding a problem. It says in Acts chapter 15, and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. So this is actually happening in Antioch first. Uh, certain men come from Judea and they're teaching the brethren Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So wait a second, wait a second. Paul said, 
Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And whoever believes in him is forgiven all their sins. Now you're telling me I also have to be circumcised. So it's not the same message anymore. Something changed. It's not enough. Not enough to believe in Jesus. You also need to be circumcised. Now Paul uh, finds a problem with this doctrine in verse 2. It says, therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, meaning a disagreement with these men who came from Judea, and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, so Paul knows that what these uh, uh, men from Judea are saying is wrong. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're changing the message. But there seems to be a lot of dispute. And uh, you have to understand uh, from the standpoint of maybe the people who lived in Antioch, well, Paul came in with the gospel. Sure, we believe it. Well, now other men are coming in from the same part of the world, from Judea, maybe from Jerusalem. They might be intimate with the apostles themselves. And they're giving us a different message. How do we know which one is true? How do we know which one is true? And so they decide to send Paul and Barnabas and probably others too to Jerusalem. Okay, you go to Jerusalem. You get Peter and James and everybody together and you guys agree and then tell us what it is. Which one? Is it just believing in the Lord Jesus that results in our salvation or do we also need to be circumcised in order to be saved? So uh, they go. Um, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles. Right? This, is, this is the big news. Uh, the Gentiles are coming in into the kingdom of God. There's no stopping them. Um, sorry, I lost my place here. Verse 4. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them, meaning the Gentiles. They preached the gospel, and the Gentiles were being saved and coming into the kingdom. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, meaning believed in Jesus, right? believed Jesus was the Messiah, um, rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So we see Jerusalem has the same issue. There's people in Jerusalem, in the church in Jerusalem, that believe it's not enough to believe in Jesus. You also have to keep the law. So now they're adding to it. It's not just being circumcised. <laughs> There's 613 commandments in the Old Testament. You better know it really well if you're counting into you know, on the law to get you into heaven. So it's a big problem. Uh, verse 6, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. I like it. It's kind of like, uh, you know, if you go with a case before uh, a trial, 
right? Uh, especially the Supreme Court, somewhere really high up like that. And you, you have a certain uh, disagreement uh, with your neighbor. Uh, I, I feel that uh, Matt uh, violated my rights by coming to my house and picking some figs off my tree. And I want him to pay for them, and he refuses to pay. They're in your front yard, they're accessible to the public. You know, you can't sue me for that. And if I was to bring that case before a court of law, they would probably start by looking for previous cases. Well, let's see. <laughs> Is this the first time it was brought up? Because if not, then we already have a case that kind of establishes things, right? And we don't have to look into it ourselves. And so they say, oh, you know, this came up 100 years ago, and there's a clear decision being made that, yes, you can, or no, you can't uh, pick somebody else's fig. So, in this particular case, Peter says, you know what, we already discussed this. This is a mute point because you remember, you know, a long time ago, God sent me to preach the gospel to Gentiles, right? That was Cornelius in his house. And believe, the Gentiles believed when I preached. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. How do we know that it's enough to believe in Jesus? Because God told us. How did God tell us? By giving them the Holy Spirit. How do you know they have the Holy Spirit? They started speaking in tongues. Right? In those days, it was one of the ways God made it clear someone got saved because they started speaking in tongues. It was evidence of the Holy Spirit. Now, we want to be careful. You know, we don't believe that it's necessary to speak in tongues in order to be saved. But God used it as a mark in those times to make it very clear. These people that Peter preached to, all they've done is believe the gospel. They haven't been circumcised yet. They haven't started keeping the Sabbath or any of the other laws of the Old Testament. And clearly they've been saved. God tells us they've been saved. Right? And therefore you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to keep the law of God in order to be saved. All you have to do is believe the gospel. Right? Very clear. That's the point Peter is making here. And he made no distinction between us, Jews, and them, Gentiles, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we we're able to bear, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. What he's saying is, you know, there's no difference between us and them. We can't keep the law. Don't ask me to be saved by keeping the law because I can't. So I'm going to trust in the Lord Jesus to save my soul in the same manner that Gentiles are trusting in him to save their soul. The law has nothing to do with salvation. Very clear what the council in Jerusalem said. Right? Now, Paul will go back. He'll, he'll, uh, he'll confront the uh, false teachers in Antioch. And now, while he's in Antioch, he finds out that these false teachers have gone into Galatia, into the area he previously went with the gospel, and they infected the false teaching in those churches as well. Okay? And Paul has to decide what to do. Do I need to do anything? Is this important? What's at stake? What's at stake? Do I need to do something about these false teachers in Galatia? Well, there's a lot of at stake. First of all, right, it has to do with salvation. In Galatians 5, 
2 through 3, Paul is writing to the Galatians, so I'm taking some excerpts right out of the epistle. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, meaning if you obey these false teachers, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is debtor to keep the whole law. It's a warning to the Galatians, if you choose to try to be right with God by keeping the law, then you're not saved, right? Because Christ is not helping you. You're not trusting in Christ. You have to trust in one or the other. You can't sit both on the law, trusting in the law to save you, and on Christ, trusting Christ to save you. You have to choose between the two. Which will it be, right? If you're trusting in the law, you will not be saved. Now, we don't teach that people can lose their salvation, but remember, people were coming into the churches, right? And they were hearing this false teaching, and maybe a lot of them were choosing to put their faith in the Jewish law, to be circumcised and to do what these false teachers were saying instead of believing the gospel that Paul was preaching, right? And so what they were doing is they were really choking this gospel explosion that was happening. You know, the purpose here is you share the gospel with someone, they get saved. They'll share it with others. They'll get saved. The gospel's supposed to grow. Everybody's supposed to hear. Everybody's supposed to get saved, right? That's the purpose of the gospel. And now this false doctrine was choking the flow of the gospel, just like uh, Vicksburg was choking the commerce of uh, northern shipping through the Mississippi. They were preventing it from going through. These false teachers were really preventing the gospel from progressing in the region of Galatia by the false uh, teaching. Paul uh, makes another point in Galatians, chapter 3, verse 24. Therefore, as the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Paul will make the point, and all of these things you'll get in much greater detail later on as we go through the book of Galatians. So if, you, if you're not getting it from me, don't worry, you'll get it later. But uh, the law had a purpose, right? And the purpose was to bring us to faith in Christ. It had many uh, pictures of Christ in the sacrifice. Uh, it taught us about our need for righteousness. It taught us that we are not righteous, that we are sinners. All these things were to prepare us to receive the gospel. But now that you are saved, you don't want to keep being under the law. It will actually prevent your growth in Christ. Like a tutor, you get to uh, help you in your uh, physics homework or geometry homework because you need some help. That's great. Well, you don't want to keep that tutor with you for the rest of your life and telling you what to do. No shop there. No, don't buy that house. He, that, that tutor will be controlling your life and preventing your development. In the same way, the law, if you try to continue to live by the law after becoming a Christian, it will prevent your growth as a Christian. It will prevent you from coming to know the Lord, uh, growing in your knowledge of the Lord as you should. So that was another concern. So just like the gospel was being choked, the growth of new believers was being choked by the false teachers in Galatia. Uh, finally, 
the churches themselves, uh, Galatians 5, 13 through 15, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. When uh, Christ came and uh, he worked with his disciples and he taught them uh, the ways of, uh, of God, uh, one of the things he taught them is to love one another. And at the end of his ministry, he said, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, right? Love was to be the characteristic of the church and really the growth of the church of believers through this love that they had and the testimony of that love. What was happening in the churches of Galatia through this false teaching was instead of uh, me and you appreciating the love of God for us and loving each other and loving the lost, you and I were competing. I, was, uh, I would be watching Matt, you know, and like, oh, you know, Matt was uh, five minutes to church before me today. Uh, that's not good. I'll write on my calendar. I'll, I'll be at church earlier next week. It became this competition of trying to keep the law. You could not keep all the laws in the Old Testament, right? But you could start competing with each other. That's what the Pharisees did. And now the Pharisees were bringing that kind of competition into the church. And instead of the believers loving each other, they were devouring one another. And so the false teachers were not just choking the gospel. They were not just choking the growth of the believers. They were choking the life of the church. They were preventing the church from developing. So the answer Paul would say is, I must I must challenge this false teaching in Galatia. Whatever the price is, it's not too high. Sherman, uh, talking about Sherman, is <laughs> actually quoted as saying that he will slay millions in order to, to capture Vicksburg. Now, we might say, uh, Sherman, your priorities are not right, uh, but it was a similar frame of mind. He recognized that Vicksburg was so crucial that, uh, that no amount of, of destruction and death in his mind was too much in order to deliver uh, Vicksburg, in order really to, to deliver the, uh, the northern states into being able to ship things down the Mississippi again. Okay, finally, uh, what is the strategy, strategy to win the battle? What is the strategy to win the battle? And that is... Uh, was provided for us in some way by, by Don. If you flipped your homework sheet to the back, you would see an outline of the book of Galatians. And we, would, we will see that Paul will use the first two chapters to defend the source of the gospel. The main point was, my gospel, what I was teaching, is from God. It's from God, and therefore you can believe it. That's the first two chapters. The second two, he'll focus on the content of the gospel, the fact that we are saved by faith alone. He will spend two chapters defending that point. And then finally, he will spend two chapters 
to defend the impact of the gospel. What should be the impact of the gospel in my life? How will I live? I think, Don, you said, how then shall we live since the gospel is true? So the gospel should have an impact on our lives, but uh, it's not the law. It doesn't mean going back to the law. Okay, with that very lengthy introduction, I apologize. Let's go ahead and quickly look at our passage for today, meaning the first six verses of the epistle to the Galatians. So Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever. Amen. First of all, uh, Paul is going to emphasize the first point he's going to make in the first two chapters, and the fact that he is an apostle. He is an apostle. What's an apostle? Apostle simply means sent one. And Paul will stress the fact he wasn't sent from men. That is, it's not like there was a group of people in Judea or Jerusalem or Antioch that said, you know what, the Gentiles really need to hear the gospel too. So we'll tell uh, Paul, we'll send Paul, and Paul will share the gospel with the Gentiles. Uh-uh, that didn't happen. Right? It wasn't from men. He's not an apostle from men. No, through men, that is, God didn't tell someone like Peter, Peter, you know, I've sent you to the Jews. Someone has to go to the Gentiles. How about Paul? Go tell Paul that he should go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. No, that didn't happen. Okay? God went directly to Paul. Right? I, I won't read that passage because that's another week right, where we will look at that passage. It was a direct revelation to Paul. He met personally with the Lord Jesus after Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus personally commissioned Paul with the message. Okay, uh, then he makes the point that it was through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. I was thinking a little bit uh, about this early emphasis on the resurrection, and at least one thought that comes to me is the gospel is miraculous, right? The uh, Judaizers, the Pharisees, relied on our flesh. That is, relied on your own power to follow the law. They would give you very detailed instruction. You have to pick so many leaves off your bushes. Do this, don't do that. They reduced everything to something they could do, right? And uh, what Paul is saying, that is not the gospel. The gospel is a miracle. God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the power of the gospel, right? Not what I can do with my flesh. And Paul continues with, um, with what could be referred to as a common Christian greeting. He says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Don had the question of what's different about this greeting, and uh, my wife graciously told me the answer, so I didn't have to research by myself. 
the main difference uh, that she found is the word our Lord Jesus Christ, as opposed to usually we'll have the word the Lord Jesus Christ. To me, um, the, what stands out really is this common greeting uh, really contains in it the uh, basic uh, Christian faith, right? How do we uh, receive God's blessing? Is it by keeping the law? No, it's by grace, right? Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. What is grace? Well, grace isn't something that you earn. Grace is a free gift, right? It's unmerited favor. So the very greeting that he used, the common greeting uh, in, uh, that was used among the Christians contained in it the Christian message, the fact that the gospel is by grace, not by works. And peace from God the Father. The gospel is about having peace with God. Right? Once I receive the gospel, once I believe the message, I have peace with God. So why do I need the law? Right? I don't need to keep the law to have peace with God. It's something that God gave me. Okay, so that's the Apostle Paul. Paul is an apostle. And then the second point in this short passage is Paul's message is the gospel of grace. Um, it says here that Christ gave himself for our sins. Uh, I was thinking about the word gave, and uh, it reminded me of my continuing struggles with being a soccer dad. I had a picture to go along with that. I don't know how easy it is to see in this picture, but uh, so I've been a soccer dad for about a year now. My uh, daughter wanted to play soccer, so I put her in a team. And then a year later, my son wanted to play soccer too, so I put him in a team. And I'm guessing that this dad has three kids in soccer because he has two kids in uniform next to him and he's watching another one. <laughs> so that usually means you're moving from game to game. And what I, what I found is that soccer can really become your life. And, uh, and I know people to whom soccer is their life, and I struggle very hard to not let soccer become my life because it shouldn't be the focus of my life, right? I should be, uh, my priority in my life should be the Lord first, uh, family second. <laughs> I mean, there's things in life that are more important than soccer, right? Not everybody knows that. Um, but I was thinking about the Lord Jesus saying here that he gave himself for our sins, and that, that has a number of meanings to it, uh, could have a number of meanings, but one of them uh, that speaks to me is the Lord Jesus dedicated his life to deal with our sins, right? That was his priority. That is what he cared about. Matthew 121 says, and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save, Je he will save his people from their sins. From, from before his birth, Jesus was dedicated for that one purpose of saving you and me from our sins. It said in Titus 2.14 of Jesus, 
that uh, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. It was the Lord Jesus' goal to deliver us from our sins. Okay, his death on the cross was to pay for our sins, but he, he more than just paid the penalty for our sins, he died so that you and I could be completely free uh, from sin in our lives. He continues and he says, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. I think uh, Don hit the mark on that when he picked the verse from 1 John 2, 16 through 18. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Uh, it's something that we may not recognize, but this world is evil. Right? Uh, my, uh, I called my dad yesterday. I appreciate those who were praying for my, my dad's knee to heal. He had a knee surgery, so as a result, I'm a dutiful son now, and I'll call him at least twice a week to uh, see how he's doing. And uh, one of the things that came up was um, uh, this candidate for the Supreme Court who's been accused of uh, sexual assault. And uh, the result is an FBI investigation. And while you know, none of us uh, would think it's acceptable for there to be a Supreme Court uh, a person in the Supreme Court with that kind of a history, uh, we all admitted we would not want the FBI to uh, be looking into what we did in high school and college, right? Uh, that was a time that uh, many people make mistakes, right? They don't make good choices in, in what they do. So it's not just him, really, it's all of us, right? He's a reflection. This candidate is a reflection. In fact, he is probably one of the best persons, right? Because he made it this far, right? A lot of people looking at the later part of his life would say he's an exemplary person. But if you go far enough back, you find imperfection in him. The whole world, right, is sinful. And uh, I think the Galatians understood that. Paul didn't mention that he will deliver us from this present evil age to teach the Galatians about the present evil age. It was to tell us who is the one who would deliver us from this present evil age. Because the false teachers were there with the... Uh, law. We can get an image of the law up there. And uh, they told the Galatians, we have the cure for you. We can help deliver you from this present evil age. Just keep the law of God. God gave us his perfect law, and all we need to do is uh, memorize all 613 commandments and very diligently try to follow them and you will be delivered from this present evil age. You won't be partakers of the sins of this world. You'll be different. And what Paul is saying, no, no, that is what the Lord Jesus came to do. The Lord Jesus and uh, his death on the cross 
That is the cure for our sin problem, not the law. Right? And he'll go into that in great details in chapter 3 and 4. So if you're wondering exactly how, then that is still coming in Galatians. The question is, if Jesus died on the cross to deliver me from this present evil age, did he do enough? Or do I need to do more? Because that is what the false teachers were saying. Basically, what Jesus did wasn't enough. You also need the 613 commandments to help you out. No, what Jesus did for you and for me was good enough. According to the will of our God and Father, this was God's plan from the beginning. And therefore, it's to him that be glory forever and ever. Amen. Often in... um, Part of the desire to be saved by the works of the law is I get some of the glory, right? If I can get to church five minutes earlier, if I'm doing this, if I'm doing that, it's all eyes on me on just how good I am. But the true gospel is God from beginning to end, and therefore he gets all the glory. Applications for today. So something that the Lord spoke to me about, so the easy, easy application for us, ah, you know, all these people that are teaching, you know, salvation by works, you know, really bad, stay away from them. But uh, I was thinking a little bit about this quote by, uh, by President Lincoln when he received the uh, message that Vicksburg was uh, delivered This is what he said. I have a slide. He said this. Thank God. The father of waters again goes unvexed into the sea. What he means by that is now there's free flow of commerce from the north. They can go out uh, through the uh, Mississippi. What did he not say? He didn't say, praise God. Vicksburg is destroyed at last. No. No. He didn't care about Vicksburg. I mean, he shouldn't say that. He probably cared about the people in it. He was sad that so many of them had to suffer uh, in the process. But he was rejoicing at the flow of the Mississippi or shipping down the Mississippi. In the same way, it's not that we need to set ourselves against or rejoice uh, in the fall of those who might promote salvation by works. But what we need to rejoice in is in the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Uh, Unfettered, unshackled, free salvation of the Lord Jesus. We should ask ourselves, do I know the true power of the gospel of Christ? Am I saved? Am I growing in Christ? Is my life demonstrating his power in it? If not then know that it is God's desire for you to find all these things and to find all these things in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness in sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our Savior, Lord. And uh, we pray that as we continue to look into this epistle, that you'll speak to us about his full provision, your full provision for us in the Lord Jesus. 
We pray if anybody here does not know him, hasn't appropriated his blessings yet, that you might help them do so. In Jesus' name, amen.